Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am Katherine Troyer, and I'm so excited to once again be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our conversation of 2023's Five Nights at Freddy's. We talked briefly when we were picking this film about the fact that you have played the the game much more than I have, because I I think I tried it once, Um, but you have like a whole, like, it's part of your childhood. Definitely. Yeah. So it's for core memory for sure. Yeah. This is a rare instance too. Uh, Listeners, long time listeners may know, Katie is definitely much more of a gamer than I am. Uh, And so this is actually kind of surprising. I know, and and we have to put like me as a gamer in kind of quotes because I'm like a soft gamer. So if on the spectrum I'm at the highest end, then that just means that like Tony, for you to have even like ever played this game, I think actually kind of shocked me, which was exciting and new. Yeah. So this it was the the video game was released back in 2014. So this was peak me being in high school marching band time. So this when this came out on uh, on I, I guess it was like iOS or whatever. We would down, like everybody and their mom was downloading it on the band bus. And we were all like shitting our pants late at night, like on rides home from football games and whatnot, playing Five Nights at Freddy's. Most of the time, we would just like all gather around one phone and kind of like all watch the experience, kind of like an early like YouTube live watch along kind of thing. It was really popular, particularly with this video game series, but we were kind of doing our own in the early days. And so I have a lot of like very positive memories with this franchise. It was a lot of fun. It's very simplistic, which I think is why everybody in that moment was able to like lean in and feel part of it and still get that those jump scares that are so core to it. And I normally don't even like jump scares. I know, I know. And it is like a game that is built on jump scares. I think where I knew that the story was returning me back to familiar ground was when you said marching band. And I was like, oh, yes, (laughs) this this is making more sense. Although I don't think I realized you played an instrument. What did you play? Uh, I was, I I was, I played marimba. So for anybody who does, that's like the, it's like a piano, but with big, big bars under it. And you hit it with mallets. Uh, And so I was the, I actually was, yeah, percussion section leader uh, and did a whole bunch of that. Probably not surprising to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say again, very not surprising. And I think it's, it's worth beginning the conversation here because I think that this is, this has been a film that has been desired for and longed for, for an incredible amount of time. It's also a film that, as you said, has come about because the games are so fan-based, right? You can't have an indie game like this that's successful, as successful as Five Nights is, and not have it be one that is like 100% rabidly so uh, supported by fans. So I have some stuff, a little bit of stuff on the scholarship of the game. Uh, not not a ton because some of it I couldn't access. There was one person who wrote an entire uh, thesis on it, and then 
so when you upload your thesis to the repository, you usually have an abstract and there's just said, yes, this is a serious thesis that I truly wrote on this uh, video game. Just stick with me. And I was like, that probably sums up the number of times that person had to have that conversation uh, with their committee. So I have some scholarship on that, but let's, let's start with as much or as little uh, of, a, of a plot summary as you can give, because I'm not sure there's much of a plot to be had, but you know. And you're referring to the film here rather than the games? I'm referring to the film because I have a lot of questions that you told me and promised me you could tell me about the games in terms of like the extravagant back stories that have been crafted. So I definitely want to know about those because I have a lot of questions about how much of the film's plot about the Freddy part uh, is is accurate. But first, what is the film about for the you folks who haven't or may never uh, watch this particular film? Yes. So for, for those of you out there who are curious about the plot, of Five Nights at Freddy's. It follows this kind of washed up mall security guard, Mike Schmidt, who is haunted by childhood trauma of losing his brother. And he is about to lose his sister unless he can get a job. And so he then goes back to this place, uh, Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, where he, uh, he was originally offered a job by this kind of sleazy owner played by Matthew Lillard. Uh, but he rejected it because he can't work nights. But now, because he needs a job, he's got to go back and he's going to work nights. And But this is no ordinary night shift. When uh, This is kind <laughs> of like a um, deranged Chuck E. Cheese kind of vibe uh, with these like really creepy animatronics that for some reason this uh, police officer whom uh, Mike befriends, re- she really likes him. She like, there's a really weird scene where she's like, Look at their dancing. Isn't this the best thing in the world? Yes. Yeah, she is the weirdest character. And no. not just through the twist. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure she makes sense, period. But yes, we, well, well, we definitely should talk about we'll that. We'll talk more about Vanessa in, in the meat of the episode. But these animatronics, though, they don't just dance. They also murder. They come to life <laughs> at night. Uh, but, and they are attempting to kill. They If they see you, they will kill you. Um, and so pretty much the setup for it. Uh, Mike uh, is trying to make sure that these guys don't get out and wreak havoc on the world, and these guys are intent on doing that. So that's kind of the general premise. No spoilers. I don't want to give away the twist for any of those. Any not people. yet. Yeah, not I mean, yet. We will in about, like, two minutes, but yes. Yeah, but in not, case anybody wants yet. to pause it right now and go to Peacock and then stream this uh, uh, yes. there, I'm giving them that option. Excellent. Yeah, so it's a new enough film that no one's really written about it. I think there could be some really fascinating pieces of scholarship written about it in terms of adaptation, because one of the really important things about adapting from a video game to a film, and this is not the first and it won't be the last horror text that does this, is that, you know, in horror video games, there's a huge amount of of autonomy on you, the player, right? You're the one making decisions, and that's usually what's scary for people. In fact, that's why I think that horror video games are probably the scariest medium for me. Uh, because especially the ones that are like Five Nights at Freddy, where it's truly more of a survivor mode, right? Where there's not, I tend to play games where I like just stand there and, and try to like kill, which means I probably wouldn't do well uh, in a real battle because, you know, you should duck behind things. But like, I'm not good at the like crafty, sneaky stuff. And that's, of course, the whole like premise of Five Nights at Freddy. And they start that first cold opening because, you know, can't have a horror film that doesn't have a cold opening. That first cold opening teases this idea that we might have some really fun camera work, that we might have some really fun ways in which it's kind of giving us the illusion, at least, of of trying to to survive. I think that's quickly set aside, but but there would be some interesting scholarship on that. There's not yet. 
so here is what's out there. There's some stuff on on the video game, including there's so there's a book on uh, that's called Indie Games in the Digital Age, and one of the pieces is by Bessie Bray, and it's called Five Nights at Fan Games, Feminism, Fan Labor, and Five Nights at Freddy's. And so she talks about the fact that we can't even come close to ignoring the impact that YouTube had on the success of this game. YouTube and the fan culture is the reason that this game developed. And Cawthon, that's how I've chosen to say his last name, the, the, the guy who made it, Sean Cawthon, like he is 100% aware of that. And short, there's a line in here where Bray says, short of giving him, giving the fans some of his money, he does almost everything he can to make sure that they're involved, that they're included. And she uses a word I'd never seen before, but I thought was uh, clever. Um, and that's lover. So instead of labor, lover, and that idea of like labor that's made because you're so passionate and excited about stuff. And so she talks. She's talking a lot about just the the impact the fan culture had on ensuring not just the success of the first game, but a a universe right that has been created. Absolutely. And Cawthorn is a absolutely fascinating figure too, because he's a former guy who had been doing christian video games really i i know i that i isn't that insane yeah so and actually fun fact this five nights at freddy's was actually based on one of his family friendly games called chipper and sons lumber company but so weird so the players like once they played it there was this main character that's like this creepy like young beaver thing um and people like families were like this game is freaking us out critics were like "Uh, there's this they called it unintentionally terrifying. And so in, in kind of actually in reaction to to this negative response to the game, that's what uh, actually led Cawthorn to use that feedback to make something really freaky and spooky that ultimately became Five Nights at Freddy's. Excellent. That's really interesting. And I, I misspoke. Uh, His first name is Scott, not Sean. Yeah. So that's so interesting. Like now I just want to do a deeper dive, but it makes sense that a lot of the scholarship really is centering him, you know, and we've talked before uh, significantly on this show about my problems with the auteur theory, right, and and sort of putting someone at the center of a universe. But I think in this case, we really can, you know, center him because he in turn is making sure to, to sort of reach out to, to other folks. And the, the other scholarship that I found uh, is actually, it's in a journal of advances in social science, education, and humanities research. Uh, It came out in 2022 with authors, uh, their last names are Ji and Yao. And uh, it was from a a conference that happened in 2022. And they're talking about a brief analysis of the narrative. And Mm. they sort of end with saying the narrative of Five Nights at Freddy franchise is truly outstanding among all indie horror games. It has elaborately crafted clues sprinkled all over its games that require players to challenge themselves to gain access to them and decipher to come up with their own interpretation. Since some clues are too cryptic for only one player to decipher, fans from all over the world have set up a fandom to discuss the game's cryptic lore. And then they say a little bit later, uh, the part covered in this paper is nothing but a tip of an iceberg among the whole meta universe. I haven't even started to discuss the book series that consists of short horror stories. Uh, And then, of course, you know, this came out before the film. So they're acknowledging that this is, again, like kind of the tip of things. I think that that's, again, something I... I was expecting to see more of in in this film, but mm-hmm. even though there is a twist, as you alluded to, none of the events that happen feel appropriately reacted to. Like it's a good way. To, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and I'm I'm not alone in, in noticing that there was a piece by 
IGN uh, and Polygon both have our, I mean, everyone has an article on it and a cup and um, in IGN's piece, they were talking about the fact that they were like, it doesn't make any sense how casually Mike is like, oh yeah, these are the ghost children who are operating that. And that's by Michael Kripe. Yeah. Uh, and then in the Polygon episode or uh, And article, that's a twist, by the way, is that like yeah, inside which is... the animatronics <laughs> are the souls of dead children who this the owner played by matthew lillard who dresses up as these animatronics so they don't recognize him um, yes <laughs> he has been doing this to the children in this town for a long time it seems like yeah. uh but somehow also the police never suspected to look there's like at the what owner is it, five yeah. there's like five kids who goes missing there's five animatronics and you the police never once be like hmm i wonder if the bodies are well, there are five animatronics, but one of them is the cupcake. Yeah. And she, and Vanessa says no one could find the bodies because they're trapped in there. But I don't know what happened to the cupcake body because the cupcake. So the, there's some issues. So and in the Polygon one, they talk about uh, Hassinger says there's like a whole bunch of inconsistencies of like, how is Mike, who is being played by an actor who's 31, have a sibling who's somewhere between the ages of like five and 10? And also like. Where is the dad? Because they explicitly say he's not dead, but he's just... So there's a lot of these weird, like, things that are yes. just not bothered to explain. So tell me about the cupcake. Is it supposed to be cupcake bigger? Cupcake is not a character from the, the games. They're just in a, it's a companion to to one of the other the characters. It's not... I, I, it's Chica, companion to Chica. So I'm not really... Right. There's no other further explanation um, in the game, which kind of makes more sense. But it makes way less sense in the movie. So I don't know why they didn't just have four ghost kids, right? Because there are four big animatronics. Um, because they still could have cupcake could have just kind of been like Chica's extension. I don't know. There, there were a, a, many questions that I had that just were either glossed over, ignored, or again, if we go back to the twist, like you said, like when when all of these epiphanies are happening, there's a moment where Mike says to his sister, like, "Hey, so what's going on? What do you think's happening?" And she's like, "Well, they're ghosts." And he's like, you think? And she's like, well, how else would they animate the electronics? And then he, it's like, okay, well, soup's done. Like, I don't know. It was just, everything was so anticlimactic, including the fact that he's like, I killed your brother. Yeah. Right? And it was still just like, okay, good to know now. Because I, I think we're maybe, we, I maybe in my introduction downplayed the amount of times that we spend flashing back to Josh Hutcherson, who plays Mike. It's <laughs> childhood trauma where we just like relive the scene of his brother being kidnapped. So you're kind of expecting that, you know, that might be like a big climatic moment or, you know, yes. could be an opportunity to do something there. But yeah, when Matthew Lillard's character is like, takes off the mask and just gives that whole speech, pretty much nothing. Yes. Giving us nothing. Yes. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, the brother isn't even an animatronic, like, why isn't he a ghost kid? Like, I have so many questions. Yeah. So many questions. So is Vanessa... Are any of the characters, the human characters in the video games, is this premise of like, it's ghost children that have been murdered by a pedophile? Like how much of the, the like just taken for grantedness of the narrative of the film is coming from the video game? So this is kind of a combination of the first three games. Um, okay. So they take elements of it because the first game is so I, you mentioned this in your, in the, or the, I guess the critical analysis that you pulled from, I kind of mentioned this, that they scatter the storytelling elements throughout the game. So the main storyline is pretty much always this, almost always some variation on animatronics are coming to life and you need to make it to morning. 
So that's pretty much always the central conceit. You are playing with, uh, you have like light switches usually, you've got different doors you can sometimes open, and you've got security cameras in most of them that you mm -hmm. can kind of see them. That's pretty consistent throughout all of them. But story-wise, it's just little drops that get mentioned in each game. So like the ghost children element, actually, that comes from Five Nights at Freddy's 3. So that is, oh. that is the, in the end of that game, that's actually when they reveal that they're um, in the bad ending, because there's two endings to it. They kind of reveal okay. that. Uh, the bad ending, the murderous children are still haunting the animatronics. The good ending, you get to take, you kind of free the children, but only until Five ah. Nights at Freddy's 4 and the franchise continues, <laughs> obviously. Okay. But okay. this is kind of pulled from the first four. Mike is the security guard from the first game. So that is, that's a pretty accurate. Uh, also, With Matthew, his whole backstory about... The brother thing. brother and mm -hmm. stuff? No, not okay. not really. The Mike, he's just a security guard who is you don't really get much information about him, honestly. He kind of just mm -hmm. is initially he's kind of snarky and not really caring, but he by the end of the game of the first game, uh, he's kind of into it. But iron okay. ironically, then he gets fired from his job for tampering with electronic ah. body odor and general unprofessionalism. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Okay. But, good so know. yes and no, there are elements of this murdered child that kind of get introduced in game four. But to my knowledge, that's not super connected to Mike. Yeah. And so the cold opening is also kind of an allusion to the second game in which it's revealed the whole the twist of the second game is that it's actually oh, this has been happening for years before the events of the first game. And that's kind of what we get in the cold open there. And then, yes, the Matthew Lillard uh, character who is playing kind of the owner, uh, William Afton. Uh, he is that is pretty accurate. Also, his daughter, he does have a daughter in the game. So that is also accurate. Her role is much expanded, though, in this version. Okay. So one of the things I really like about adaptation studies that kind of changed how I think about things, and, and much of this comes from Linda Hutchin, is that we have to remember that there may be a text that is chronologically first, but that may not be someone's first original text. Right. Like, so because I didn't play the games, um, for me, the film is the first text. Now, admittedly, that's not going to be the case for the vast majority of people who are clamoring to watch this game. Um, on the other hand, they kept it at a PG-13 rating, despite the fact that probably by now, most of the people who played those original games are, are adults. And so they don't need that PG-13. So they are also hoping to like bring new life into it so that for this may end up being the original text for, for an increasing number of people who then go play the games. But I, I think that that's where I find this film so odd is that so much of, of the revelations are just like, oh, well, this isn't actually a revelation to you because you already knew this because you've read the lore or you've read the games or, you, or played the games or you've read the stories. Mm -hmm. And I, that's the only explanation I can think of for why everything is just so anticlimactic and weirdly announced. Like nothing feels causal, right? Like everything is like, oh, by the way, yes, I am the daughter of the man who killed your brother. And yes, I have been like tricking you. And I knew that the ghost children were here, but yeah. it's not going to really impact our relationship in any uh, significant way. Yes. You know, I'm still going to sometimes help you and sometimes not. Like there was just a lot of really weird, I don't know, it felt liminal in a way that, that didn't feel intentional. If it had been intentional, it would have been awesome. Instead, it just felt timeless in a, in a not good way, like in an accidental way. I, I agree. And I think it's because they're kind of combining elements from like various games into this and they're slightly changing things like when they in first introduced like 
the William, the guy's daughter, she's like a, she is a baby and it's called, her name is Elizabeth, not Vanessa, like it is in the film. Um, and doesn't actually interact very much with like the security guard characters at all. But then by putting her in a situation, aging her up and kind of putting this as like in the future where this events have already clearly happened, uh, yes. it, it kind of muddles things. It definitely does. And it also then leads to some really frustrating moments where the Vanessa character who's building this relationship with Mike also has all this key information that if she was actually building a true relationship, like you're saying, would have been revealing. Maybe we could have had a get out moment, like where it's like, oh, knew the whole thing the whole time. I'm actually evil. This is my dad. Sorry, family yeah. first kind of thing. But we don't get that either. It's just like, it's no. totally fine that you didn't tell me that you knew my who killed my brother. Yes. The central thing that you knew from the moment I, that I had been like using drugs to like induce myself and go to sleep to make myself dream and relive this moment on the hope. You're like, you think maybe you would have mentioned that? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's the thing is that there it could have it would not have taken too much to either lean further into this idea of like. That they're kind of caught in this neverland, right? Where like, mm -hmm. because there's so many allusions to that of like, you know, the house is, isn't his house. It's, it was clearly the parents' house, but it's still kept up nice, much nicer than you would expect. But if like, if everything had kind of been like supporting this idea that he has been living as has Vanessa, as has like everyone that like once trauma hits, you can never not live in trauma land. Like if that had been the theme and really leaned into that would have been great. Or if they would have gone the opposite route, like you said, and just been like, hey, we're going to build her real rich backstory of like the fact that she was in on it. But instead, they just kind of like decided to see what would happen if they didn't pick a lane. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just kind of like driving down the road and it's it's not in a lane at all. And it just like makes it lackluster in, in some really like intentional feeling ways. And I think that's the part that's wild to me is that like it doesn't feel like they even knew that they were missing opportunities. It feels like they felt like they made the right decision. But in truth, I don't think they made decisions. For sure. And I'll, I would definitely want to give credit to director Emma Tammy here for the use of the animatronics and the kind of like yes. that, the world, like the world building within there it, and the production design of the actual place. It all looks really good, but it's like what you're saying. It's super underutilized. Like the animatronics themselves. That's another example. They're this huge, ever, I mean, they are the game. And yet they kind of feel sidelined to the, except for the few moments that they show up to do the jump scare. You're not really like, I also don't know if I could really, I mean, I can, I, cause I played the games, I can kind of pick them apart, but we don't, we don't really get much time individually with the animatronics to appreciate them no. individually. They're mostly as a unit or we see kind of the Freddy kind of coming there a little bit with Foxy, but like, I, I've just, when you have these like practical designs, which they are largely practical, you just, I'm yes. like, I wish they would have used them more. And we would have could maybe have spent a little bit less time with these kind of human characters, particularly if they're not going to give us that emotional depth. Yes. Like having this whole additional story that took up not an insignificant amount of time mm -hmm. of the aunt, right? And how she wants, you know, custody of, of the kid. And then there's like the teacher scene where I, I had a problem with the scene at the end with the daughter or with the sister, because I had thought the sister was neurodivergent. But suddenly she's like, they're like, she's all better. And and so I was kind of upset because I thought that, again, it felt like a missed opportunity. But I do want to say that you're absolutely correct that the fault does not lie uh, on Emma Tammy. I think that it's a, actually, cinematically speaking, a mm -hmm. really pretty film. I think that the Freddy's is amazing 
And I'm not sure we ever honestly needed to be anywhere else other than in Freddy's because Agreed. there were entire rooms that were so cool. Like, the, why is the kitchen, like, I know it's supposed to be like a piece of joint, but the kitchen was weirdly big. Like, it felt, I don't know, maybe that's just me, like, uh, you know, having flashbacks to The Shining, but it just feels like there are so many things we could have done in the space that was clearly beautifully built. And I just am not sure why you would choose to do that, particularly because, again, the game isn't going to take us out of Freddy's, right? Like, don't all the games happen exclusively? No, okay, not, not all of them okay. happen exclusively in Freddy's. There are some that happen in, like, there's Freddy's, like, theme park. There are some okay. that happen, like, where the characters do, like, sometimes occasionally, like, they will show up in people's houses and, like, there are things. So, like, occasionally, yes, it goes outside of it. But by and large, yeah, we're pretty much in, like, a Freddy Fazbear pizzeria. Yeah, I just... It just seems like we could have been there a lot more. Obviously, you're right. We, we spent an awful lot of time reliving that flashback, probably a little bit more than we needed. But I'm not even sure we needed the initial, like, yes, it builds a little character to, to understand that, you know, he's easily triggered by um, people that he thinks are being kidnapped when he's the, the mall cop. But, like, we could have begun the film, honestly, with him sitting in Matthew Lillard's character's office mm -hmm. waiting to to get a job right like we could have or even with him deciding to take the job like i'm not sure that again there was much character development because everything just felt consequenceless and i mean i i have to imagine that some amount of this is from the production hell that this was put in <laughs> so pretty much immediately after the game was released warner brothers snapped up the rights to it in around 2015 they were pretty intent on making a movie uh but it was going to be very very very, very different. So uh, it was going to be by Roy Lee, David Katzenberg, Seth Grannon Smith. Uh, kind of, so much more of kind of like a, ah, I don't know, Seth, I, more of a dude bro kind of vibe, going to be honest. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like Seth Grannon Smith is, for people who don't recognize that name, he's the author of all those like Abraham Lincoln vampire slayer kind of things. Oh, so, yeah. Like, okay, yeah. That's kind of the vibe that they were going with. Um, but then it kind of got, the rights got transferred over to Jason Blum's Blumhouse Productions in around 2017. And they initially hired, and this was wild to me, Chris Columbus to <laughs> direct and co-write the film, which was pretty wild given his background. I was like, because he's the guy who's like most known for like adventures in babysitting and home alone and home alone mrs yeah. doubtfire so you're like <laughs> which in retrospect rewatching particularly home alone like he mm. has a knack for for body oh. trauma right that's actually a um, good point and adventures in babysitting also has some like really lovely gritty elements so he i think he could have done it but it would have been a very weird film yeah a very weird one so he was brought but, yeah. on the film is like kind of like it's uh, it will they won't they every time jason plum would get asked about it in the by the press he would be like oh yeah we're really excited definitely still happening mm -hmm. still coming still coming christopher columbus then leaves the project and in october of 2022 which you'll oh. be like that's a year before the film came out and that would be accurate that is when emma tammy stepped into the project to she uh kind of she took over as director and also as a co-screenwriter, along with Scott Cawthorn, who is the original, a game writer, and then Seth Cuddleback. So I, I can imagine that the story problems that we're mentioning definitely come from that. And so I do, it, yeah. that's a wild production process. And do you know, I don't know much about Tammy, in part because, you know, she doesn't have a, a super long 
filmography yet. She's she has directed stuff. This wasn't her first thing, but um, none of it is. This is her first like big film. Really, this is her blockbuster. Um, this is her breakout. For yeah. Sure. So do you do you have any knowledge of like why? Tammy would have been attached to the project or how she got attached to the project? Just a, she's a really big fan of it. And she honestly, okay, she has like a really intense love of the lore uh, and kind of she comes from that background. And she honestly was like, just, I think, yeah. So I'm not 100% sure the specifics of how she landed that job. Uh, and Tammy, if you want to come on the podcast and correct the record, you are more than welcome to. You are always welcome. But yeah, so she's kind of just has a lot of respect for this franchise. She gave this really great interview um, with The Wrap where she talks about how collaborating with the game's creator was essential because and just loves the encyclopedia knowledge of the lore. So like wow. she's okay. she loves this franchise. And so I she, and she has t- been teasing uh, that she wants to do more with it. And so I'd honestly love to see what an Emma Tammy fully led Five Nights at Freddy's vision would yes. look like because I would dip, I wouldn't be surprised if later down the line we learned that a lot of the stuff that she kind of a lot of these story problems were handed to her from previous production that was already in development. And she said that she wants to do if there are sequels, she would like to do them as interestingly kind of like based on the games. And so the second one, if that is true, is at it's actually the prequel, like I had mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. And it is set not at Five Nights at Freddy's the Pizzeria, but at this like off-site theme park. So I'd honestly oh, kind cool. of be interested in maybe seeing that. Yeah. So I want to say that I I am a big fan of some of the of many of the decisions decisions that Jason Blumhouse makes in terms of first you can tell he's like living his best life, right? Like he is having such a good time living his best life. And I feel like he is so willing to take a gamble, right? Like it is a gamble to choose a director that's not really done very much for a big project like this. And it is also just in our Hollywood world a gamble to take on a female director. Obviously, Get Out was a huge gamble that paid off immensely. And a lot of his film projects, you can tell are just like, I'm still having fun with this franchise. I sure hope you are too. And I'm I'm very respectful of, of those decisions. I do grow frustrated with the fact that, you know, if it's a Blumhouse film, it is almost inevitably going to be affirmative horror, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and very, very explicitly so, with Get Out being probably the only major exception. I recently watched Insidious red door or whatever the the last one is in the franchise and again it was like as hopeful and happy as it could be but if tammy could come in and sort of make five nights at freddy 2 more match some of her indie films that she's written and directed i think that would be really intriguing and still i think up blumhouse's alley but it would just be less blumhousey i agree yeah and I actually want to just quickly correct the record. I'm getting the game. I got the games mixed up. The second one is <gasps> similar, is more similar to the first one. It is still set at the Freddy's. Okay. So I would be, I, I'll still say what I said in that I would like to see Emma Tammy's version, uh, but it is not quite the theme park. That is a later spinoff. Okay. I was, I got that in, mixed up. There's a lot of lore well, to keep straight. There, there is a lot of lore to keep straight. And I think, I think that's also what I would like to see, right? Like if if she knows this this world, this universe as well as as she says she does, you know, I would really like to see it it dig a little bit deeper. And I know that a lot of my a lot of my issues with the film do come from the fact that it's affirmative. You know, like the creepiest characters are going to prove out to be you know innocent little ghost children. It's hard to like be scared of the animatronics the moment you realize they're ghost children. 
And the moment you know they're not going to be evil ghost children, Matthew Lillard, as always, you know, plays a character who manages to be psychotic, but not necessarily scary. I've never found him, you know, even going back to Scream particularly scary. He's just like over the top, um, which is what he does best. So like there was so little that was scary about this film, again, in part because like everyone was like, oh, ghost children? Sure. Oh, your dad is the pedophile that killed my brother? Sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm like, even like when the little sister is leaving the house with Freddie and Freddie's like, he, he, aunt so-and-so so silly. She's taking a nap. And the little girl who's like 10 or 12 is like, okay. Like there was just so many moments that like, were stripped of the scariness, right? They were like rendered unscary and in really intriguing ways. And I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I, I've got to agree. I didn't I didn't particularly find this film scary. And I, I one of the things that I was I was interested in, I, you just answered my question. I was gonna ask you is if you considered it like a really horror. And I guess it is in the sense that there is like these villains. Is very, it? I I guess. I guess loosely. If you're, if like your only publication is like, there is something spooky and there is like some trauma related to it and there are jump scares, I, I guess it has all those elements. Were there I, jump scares? <laughs> like, I, I think there were, they were attempted jump scares, but okay. unlike the video game in which I think, I one thing I do want to call out is I was not impressed with the sound design of this film. And yeah. I think I only noticed, I only maybe say that because I am so impressed with the sound design from the original games is that so much of the original games is about listening to the footsteps or the breathing of these things. And some games don't even have security cameras. So that's all you get is this auditory scape. It's mostly darkness. Yes. And then these creatures will pop out of you with like this loud burst. And it is, it's terrible. It's terrifying. And I cannot say that the film captured that aspect of the game. Every semester, almost every semester, I have some student ask me at some point what the difference is between a thriller and a horror film. And I've never quite been able to articulate it very well. But this semester, I actually had a student provide a really lovely definition. And that is, she said that a thriller wants you to keep watching because they want you to see you're like on the edge of your seat about what's going to happen. Whereas a horror film wants you to want to look away, right? Like it's too, it's too hard to look at what you're seeing. And I'm not sure, honestly, that Five Nights at Freddy's was either a thriller or horror by that definition, because I'm not sure the the lack of any like conflict made it hard for it to be a thriller, but also the lack of any consequence made it hard for it to be a horror film because it is a terrifying game that much i know Mm -hmm. i tried playing about five minutes but i was playing on like i was playing on a device that didn't that was like set extra dark so i couldn't see the already dark game and i didn't have the sound set right so i quickly gave up after like five maybe ten minutes after i had died like twice and i realized i was this was not the game to pick up casually right then but like it is a terrifying game this idea of like survival and none of that not a single part of that was carried over into this the people who died deserve to die uh, even the aunt you know deserves to quote die because she's trying to take the family away like yeah. no one no one's it's okay that we we don't need to have gruesome deaths but we should have at least jump scares so or yeah. at least something and i think just maybe that some of that is from the shift in pov like so much of the games is like told really much you are the pov of the security guard who or whomever uh is experiencing that and so yeah i i think that there is just some like tension there that comes from like when they're trying to flesh out this game and world when honestly i think they if we they had maybe just done a more straightforward adaptation where you are just 
following this security guard uh, on like the five nights that he's working there, and he is trying urgently to not get murdered. I, I, that's a and you that's a premise I want to see. PG thirteen. Yeah, you could still have it be PG thirteen because PG thirteen is really based more on what we see on the screen versus what traumatizes us between spaces. And there are moments where Tammy shows us how terrifying that could be. So the scene where the sister is sleeping uh, in her little fort and we have a POV camera of one of the animatronics that, or the ghost and the door opens and it kind of like floats over to her. There are these moments that show us that it's clearly not an issue of cinematography and directing. It's It's clearly just, again, this like, attempt to build these backstories that would only matter if they mattered but they clearly don't again because we're in this liminal space where there are no consequences time is meaningless except we're going to keep being reminded of the past i don't know it was so much potential but it also wasn't bad it just wasn't good no i i feel it was just so I'm going to use some Gen Z slang here. Mid. I was so mid. I The whole time, <laughs> I just couldn't be, I couldn't help but being like, you know, it's not like, it's not offensive. It's not, um, I'm not like angry even that I watched this, but it's so forgettable for a game that is so, for me at least, unforgettable, which I think is just disappointing. And I'd really like them to take another crack at it, actually. And you know what? They may actually get a chance to do that because... This, really? in a year of box office bombs and Hollywood's on fire, Five Nights at Freddy's is a rare success for the industry. So it opened, uh, its domestic opening was $80 million, which is very, very good for a horror film. And it's also proved to have legs. It's now, it's become the highest grossing film of 2023, surpassing uh, Scream 6 and Megan from earlier this year. Um, well, it's the highest grossing horror film, right? Not not film. Oh, did all. I say Total, film? Right. Excuse me. Yes. The highest grossing okay. horror film of 2023, passing Scream uh, 6 and Megan. And then it's also Blumhouse's highest grossing film that the studio has produced, period. Which is wild to me. Absolutely wild to me. Because uh, they do have some other really big films in there filmography so hopefully it could have you know it would be great if this could become i mean it might even be good as a mini series i'm not sure that it has mm. to be locked into a film i i think that i have been finding that the best horror adaptations now most of them are by mike flanagan right but a lot of them have been these these mini uh series and i still maintain that despite this the cgi the shining tv made for tv series is, is like one of my favorites so, like, I think there's things that could happen that would be more exciting uh, if we could have a little bit more space to do it. And I want to keep Tammy on. I just want, For I sure. want it to, like, either be more surreal, lean either more into that, or, like, have the backstory matter. Uh, and, you know, Vanessa's in a coma, so she may or may not wake up. And, of course, Matthew Lillard's character uh, is clearly, I mean, he says, I always come back, which mm -hmm. <laughs> is both true for Lillard and for the character. So, like... There is room. Uh, they just have to make some decisions and stick to them. I, I yeah, totally agree. And because and I definitely I think there are there are a lot of like weird little elements in here, too, that I, I enjoyed. And I think that probably come from Tammy's love is like there's a weird amount of like YouTube cameos in here, like Five Nights at Freddy's content creators who make like weird yeah. little cameos. The Five Nights at Freddy's song that you hear at the end that I've not been able to get out of my head is actually it's a fan that's a fan song that was made by that's the cool. israeli-american band living tombstone uh 
So yeah, it was released as a single back in 2014 because they just love the the game so much. And it's kind of just become the Jack Black did a TikTok with it that blew up and it's just become like this really viral thing. Um, and it's really core to like the fans and the lore. And the fact that's included is it was a nice touch too. like those little moments in there that really do make me want to give them another crack at it. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on this film. Uh, you know, we we are aware that it was pretty well received by a lot of fans, um, not so much, of course, by the critics, but that there's a, a pretty positive fan response to it. And we would love to know what you appreciated, what you would want to see in uh, a sequel or a requel or whatever they ended up doing to kind of continue breathing new life into this. You can, of course... It kind of works perfectly, yeah. honestly, if they want to do what Emma Tammy said and just do a straight adaptation of the second one, because it is a prequel, so they could just ignore everything. See? <laughs> yeah, see, that'd be perfect. And and again, it's it's not that the actors were bad. It's just that there was lots of missed opportunities that could easily be rectified. So you can reach out to us. Uh, all of our information is in our episodes. Of course, we want to say thank you to Jackson because Jackson makes it sound like we don't occasionally pause and have to Google things. So thank you so much, Jackson. <laughs> thank you so much, Jackson. So exciting news because we'll tell you what our next couple of episodes are because our next episode is the end of a journey. Tony, what is what is up next for us? Yeah, we're going to be wrapping up the Friday the 13th franchise. So we're going to do a little bit of a post-mortem on the Freddy v. Jason in, in light of the rest of the Friday the 13th uh, genre and franchise that we've now unpacked. And then we're also going to be looking more extensively for our full episode at the 2009 remake. Very exciting. And of course, eventually we'll have to, if the show ever gets released, we'll have to see what uh, can Crystal Lake is like, which is also supposed to be Peacock, I think, because Peacock's kind of stepping up their game. But... For now, we are almost done after um, after a really long time. So we're going to do that. But then we thought that after that, we would sort of keep to this theme of creepy animatronics. And so the film after our last Friday the 13th is going to be what? We're going to be talking about the Nick Cage film, Willy's Wonderland, that came out in 2021. And so it's kind of a similar-ish premise with these animatronics that come to life at this abandoned family entertainment center. I've heard it's got more of a comedic edge to it, and it's honestly supposed to be a little bit more uh, violent and intense. So I am really excited to check that one out. Yeah, me too. Thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. 